Good morning and welcome to another broadcast of Faith Mountain Ministries. My name is Bill Vanderbush and I'm sitting here in my hometown of Marshall, Minnesota, the place where kind of all began. One of my many hometowns actually, Marshall, Minnesota, Lake Benton, Minnesota, and Brookings, South Dakota, I would all consider hometowns. My dad grew up in Holland, Minnesota, which isn't too far from here. And uh, the, the area around here was really, uh, just years ago, just electric with revival. And so whenever I come up here, it's just tapping into kind of kind of laying hold of a, a power line that was laid here many, many years ago. It's a man named Richard Peterson that started a ministry called Prayer Power, and his entire ministry was built on, as you can imagine, prayer. And uh, my dad was called to take over that ministry when Pastor Pete uh, died. And when he passed away, my dad happened to be in, in Kauai, and they didn't know uh, the, the the board members, the 12 board members on the board of prayer power didn't know where my dad was, but they felt like that God had laid it on their heart that my dad was supposed to be the one to take over the ministry. And so one of the members of the board, and they all kept this story in, until until the days of their, they died. So I this is the only story I ever knew, and it just seemed too fantastic to be true. But this is the way the story was relayed to me by the people that were there. One of the members of the board said, well, He's somewhere on this planet, and God knows where he is. And more than likely, he's near a phone. So let's ask God to give us numbers. So these 12 uh, couples went to prayer, and as they prayed, God gave them a number. Somebody else confirm a number, they'd write it down, and they get another number, they'd confirm the number and write it down. My dad was sitting in a home, uh, we were just guests for a meal, I believe, in a home over in Kauai. We were bouncing from church to church, and we'd been doing this for months, and nobody knew where we were going to be at the time. There was no internet. Uh, we, we It was just day-to-day. It was, you know, week-to-week, day-to-day living, and so we didn't know where we were going we were gonna to be from one moment to the next. And so uh, Dad was sitting on a couch in somebody else's house, and there was a phone on the end table next to the couch. And I remember I was playing with records. Uh, They had this really cool record player that would actually uh, uh, drop a whole bunch of records down, you know, one at a time. And so you never had to go and switch the records. I just thought it was the coolest thing. And they had a bunch of kids' music records. I just remember sitting there and listening to Salty the Singing Songbook. It was a kid's record of hymns. And those of you who grew up in the church might remember that. And my dad's sitting on the end of the couch talking with the pastor who's sitting in a chair across the living room from him. And the phone rings. Now you had to know my dad to understand how this works. And so my dad reached over and picked up the phone and answers the phone says, hello. If he was near a ringing phone, he'd pick it up and answer it and witness to somebody, lead somebody to Jesus. That's just kind of the way he was, uh, led strangers to Jesus all the time. Just always introducing people to Jesus. I'm still just inspired by, by that. And so, uh, Dad picks up the phone and says, hello, and it's these guys from this ministry in Marshall, Minnesota called Prayer Power, and they inform my dad, say, says Henry Vanderbush, so yes it is, inform my dad that um, uh, Pastor Peterson has, has died, and they have a ministry called Prayer Power here in Marshall, and they want my dad to come and take over the ministry, which is, you know, 30 minutes away from where he was born and raised, major, kind of the major town around this area. And my dad uh, was, I believe, in in uh, October or late in the fall in uh, 
uh, and, and we're in Kauai, and this is Minnesota. And Dad said it had to be circumstances that miraculous to get him to even consider leaving Hawaii to go to Minnesota just before winter. And yet, they told him, they said, listen, God gave us one number at a time until we had enough numbers. We figured that this had to be the right number. And so we called this number and, and you answered the phone. So it was obvious that it was, it was the hand of God. I mean, imagine the amount of, of, uh, of, uh, unbelief you have to completely shut down in order to sit down and go, okay, this is rational and logical enough to know that God knows where he is. He's probably near a phone. God knows the number of that phone. Let's ask God for numbers. Not a big deal. Um, and yet, uh, it, it, one in a, one in a, you know, hundred million chance, who knows? And, and so you begin to realize when you work with God in these simple ways, how, how much God wants to encourage us in faith. Uh, Dad got that call that day, and suddenly we were leaving Kauai to go to Minnesota. I remember uh, as we, we landed in uh, Seattle, Tacoma, Washington area, that's where the motorhome had been parked. We'd left there to go to Hawaii. And so we had to drive from Seattle all the way to Marshall, Minnesota. And I believe coming across the Grand Tetons, we lost some gears or brakes or something. Anyway, Dad barely got us down the Tetons and um, everything was just, it was a mess. You could just smell the burning of whatever had burned up. And, um, and so we lost a day. And Dad ended up doing a Bible study with the guys at the garage who were fixing our motorhome and ended up leading a number of them to the Lord. And then as we were driving across Montana, heading toward uh, South Dakota, Dad said, boy, we sure, we sure could use uh, uh, some translation right now. You know, like Philip was transported from one area to another uh, in the scriptures and so doesn't seem like that'd be too far out of the reach of God. And sure enough, within a, a short amount of time, we came to the state line of South Dakota and God gave us an extra day. So uh, it, it's happened. I mean, this is the way I grew up. I saw this stuff happening all the time. God was just, he was intimately involved in everything that we invited him into. He wasn't controlling about everything or anything. He was, he was just involved to the extent that we invited him. You know, I was listening to a message by Andrew Womack I thought was fascinating recently on faith. And he spoke about uh, the idea that you and I don't have differing measures of faith. I thought that was a fascinating concept because I've heard differently over the years. But the more he talked about it, the more I realized that's true. Jesus has given us the Holy Spirit without measure. God has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. And, uh, and that means that because Christ lives in us, he doesn't come and show up with just a small amount of faith or a medium amount of faith or a large amount of faith. You don't get a junior Holy Spirit, so you get the full ramifications of everything that Christ has. So when we ask God to increase our faith, uh, Jesus said things like this, if you have faith the size of a grain of mustard seed, you can say to a mountain, be removed, and it'll be removed for you. It says, you believe and do not doubt in your heart. You know, the time that Jesus was healing Jairus' daughter, he said the phrase, this interesting phrase, and I hadn't noticed it until recently. He said the phrase, only believe. Only believe. And I'm thinking, like, what does that even mean, only believe? I look it up in the Greek, and does it just mean, you know, uh, uh, you know, 
believe a lot or strain really hard to believe? No, it means believe in faith, but don't mix it with anything else. I realize that we are, we are creatures that have the ability to actually have mixtures within our lives. We mix law and grace. We mix, uh, you know, we mix good things, love, joy, peace, all at the same time. We mix uh, life, lives of, in in a sense, uh, holy virtues and sinful actions. It's the way it seems that we do. We're people or creatures of mixed uh, mixture, and and it's possible. Listen to this to mix faith and doubt together. So let's just consider for a second that maybe it's not more faith that we need, but less unbelief. Stop and think about that for a moment. Not more faith that we need, but less unbelief. So when Jesus says only believe, in other words, don't unbelieve at the same time that you're believing. And I've come to realize that there are multiple kinds of unbelief. I think there are four kinds of unbelief. I think the first kind of unbelief is the unbelief that uh, just comes through ignorance. In other words, we just don't even know what we don't know. I think this is the typical unbelief that most people going uh, about their life in the world actually have. Back in Maui, when we first did the school of ministry years ago, we used to see tons of people healed out on the streets. Not as many people were healed in church, which I always thought was interesting. We, we estimated it that one in 10 people that were prayed for in church had some sort of measurable response. We estimated that nine out of 10 people out on the streets had a measurable response. So the question was, do the people on the streets have more faith? Well, I don't think so. Maybe they just had less unbelief. In other words, they had no reason not to believe. I think many people who've been in church for a long time have built up a lot of cases for the reasons why God doesn't do things. We create that that kind of theology, and then we wonder why nothing happens around us. And so you get out on the streets and let's say you're going to pray for a broken arm or tumor or some kind of condition, chronic pain condition or whatever. And you start to pray for somebody. They're thinking, Hey, nothing's happened before. And it's like, nothing's chances are nothing's going to happen anyway, but I might as well give it a shot. And it's almost like for just a moment, letting somebody else's faith take over your unbelief. And you think to yourself, man, it'd be great if this happened and things just begin to happen. And the people out on the streets are rejoicing and praising God. And then we inform them that this is Jesus doing the work. Jesus is real. He's alive. He's not just an idea, a concept, or a philosophy. He's very, very active. So only believe. That's that's the you know, ignorance, uh, ignorant kind of unbelief uh, is what I would say is the majority of people just out on the streets have. Just, they just don't know. Maybe, maybe, he, maybe he can do it. Maybe he can't just ignorant of what is possible. And so they rely on the faith of another and then certain things begin to happen. There's no faith being destroyed if nothing does happen because there's no faith present in the first place. You know what I'm saying? So that's what I mean. Ignorant unbelief. What is God capable of? I don't know. And so that's ignorant unbelief. The second kind of unbelief is an unbelief that is rooted in the fact that you were taught something, but you're taught something wrong or taught something different than the gospel. So, you know, the Bible's pretty, pretty bold about the stories about Jesus, but then it's also bold about the disciples that went out and did the exact same things. Jesus says, you believe in me, the works that I do, you will do also, and greater works will you do. And then we have an entire belief system that uh, many people who profess faith in Jesus believe in 
that is what's called cessationist. And that is that the miracles, signs, wonders, prophecy, and gifts of the Spirit all ceased with the death of the apostles. But you have to do some real scriptural gymnastics to come to that conclusion. That conclusion is pretty much entirely based upon people's subjective experiences where they tried something that didn't work and they determined, here's the reason it didn't work, and that means it must not be available anymore. Well, the problem is, is that you say, okay, well, who was the last apostle? Well, you say, well, it's people who saw Jesus. That's historically, theologically, the way that you determine who an apostle was. People who saw Jesus. Yeah, well, Paul was an apostle, and he never met Jesus face to face. People say, well, he met him on the road to Damascus. Well, then he met him in the way that you and I can meet him in the Spirit. The resurrected Christ ascended in glory can appear in the Spirit to anybody. That makes anybody an apostle. Paul was an apostle. Timothy was an apostle. Never met Jesus. So you have this, this idea that, all of these gifts died with the apostles, but the reality is, is you can see that miracles, healing, signs, wonders, the gifts of the Spirit, prophecy, and all that stuff still existed even beyond the point of the death of last, the last apostle. Uh, you can still see it today. The, the testimony of millions and millions of Christians who have, who have stepped into what is known as the baptism of the Holy Spirit and have seen the power of the Holy Spirit active and moving in their life. I could testify to healings I've seen with my own eyes and my own hands at the hands of other people. It's not me doing the healing, it's Jesus. And so sometimes I think we learn things just from our own experiences. They, they, we try something, it didn't work, so then, well, I'm not going to be offended at it. I'm just going to find out what the truth is. I'm going to determine that the truth then is that all of this has ceased. And, um, and, and the scripture people use the verse that says, when that which is perfect is come, then that which is imperfect to be done away. We know in part, we prophesy in part, you know, things like that. So they say, well, the knowledge, the prophecy and all that stuff and the gifts of the spirit, that's, that's stuff that we do in part, seeing through a glass dimly, the perfect, the, the, the son of God has come. So therefore we don't need that stuff anymore. But the reality is, is Jesus did these things. And then he turned to us and said, greater works will you do kind of hard to like push that out of the way kind of hard to completely eliminate that from scripture. I believe every person, every Christian knows that it's possible to see more than we've ever seen before. We pray and we don't see something happen. So what do we do with that? I think that leads to the third kind of unbelief and that is offended unbelief. Uh, unbelief that carries with it a bit of an offense. You know, let's say you pray for somebody to be healed and they don't get healed. You pray for somebody to be be raised up and they don't get raised up. You 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 believe and you know that you've believed and, and you you feel like you've believed really, really, you know, really well. And you stood on the scripture and then you don't get the breakthrough. I think of Pastor Bill Johnson, probably one of the most faith-filled people on the planet in terms of the exercise of it without wavering, without doubt, without unbelief. And his wife, Benny, who wrote a book on healing and, and wholeness, uh, the power of miracles through communion, took communion every day in the last days of her life, didn't see the breakthrough and died of cancer. What do you make of that? What happens in those moments? Well, this, this is where you at a bit of a crossroads. You can choose to be offended at God and you can choose to harbor, an, in a sense, a, an offense towards God. Or you can basically say, it must have been my fault. There's hidden sin in my life. So therefore you do guilt and shame. And when you carry guilt and shame or you carry an offense at God, either way, it's, it's sort of a way of like, of, of putting a stronghold of, of, um, let's say like, like a, like a twisted form of faith around 
the citadel of your own unbelief. And that becomes your safety net. This is why it didn't happen. And therefore, um, uh, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't quite work the way I thought it would. And then we kind of back up into these moments where we say, okay, God is sovereign. If he wanted to heal, he could. And if he wanted to do it, he would. But he didn't do it, so therefore it wasn't his will. God is sovereign. You know, the reality is when Jesus, uh, was it 18 times in the Bible where Jesus says, go in peace, your faith has made you whole. He actually put it on the person who was actually either doing the believing or the unbelieving to actually see the miracle happen. And so the issue is not so much. You say, well, Bill, are you saying I didn't get healed because I don't have enough faith? No, maybe it's not the issue of faith. Maybe it's not the size of the faith. Maybe it's the size of the unbelief. Maybe it's the unbelief that we have stored up. Maybe the idea that, that we lean more on our unbelief than anything else and have like a shred of faith, faith in a concept or an idea that when we die, we'll go to heaven because of what Jesus did. That's receiving salvation by grace through faith. That's provable at the end of your life. But salvation is supposed to be a transformative experience that converts us from one thing to another. If any man be in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, he is a new creation, a new creature. Old things are passed away and all things become new. That regenerating newness that actually saves us, spirit, soul, and body, is embodied in the entirety of the word sozo, which is the word salvation. We translate it in English, salvation. It means salvation of the spirit, soul, and body. And God's saving grace has the ability to impact us completely. I, I like one, one thing I heard Andrew Womack say in this message I thought was fascinating. is He says, uh, he relays the story. I'll get to the fourth kind of unbelief here in a second. But he relays the story of the man whose son kept having seizures and falling into the fire. And he calls the disciples, and the disciples can't cast this, this demon out of this boy. And so uh, Jesus comes over and says, Oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long must I remain with you? Bring him to me and cast the demon out of this, out of this young man. Uh, when the disciples ask uh, ask Jesus why they couldn't do it. He says specifically, it's because of your unbelief. He, he relays the, the, the ability to do the miracle or not do the miracle in this case to the fact that they, they carried unbelief in their heart. There was something of unbelief in them. And, and then he goes on to talk about this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. And now you probably remember the story because we've all heard this. If you've been in church for any length of time, you heard messages on spiritual warfare. You heard this story where Jesus said, this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. It's often interpreted that the kind that he's talking about is, oh, it's kind of demon. But I don't think that's it at all. I think if you read the story in context, he's not talking about certain kinds of demons. I mean, there's not certain demons that just don't don't uh, react to the name of Jesus Christ or the power of Jesus Christ. There's not certain levels of demons where you know some have like a stronger Im uh, they're immune to to uh, being cast out by the power of Jesus. You don't have that. I don't think the kind he's talking about is different kinds of demons. He's speaking specifically in this context to unbelief. And he says, this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. In other words, this particular unbelief that you guys are carrying only comes out by prayer and fasting. And what does prayer and fasting do? Well, it brings your physical body into subjection. Your body now becomes uh, uh, subject to the moving of the spirit. And the interesting thing is, this is the point of fasting, I think. And that is if you, every now and then you fast, you're sort of reminding your body as to who's in charge. 
you know, if you, if you, um, those of you who you out there, you work out, you fast every now and then you eat healthy, you do, you know, you do the right thing, purge your body, detox your body and cleanse it from all kinds of toxins and junk like that. You know, that's part of that is bringing your body under subjection. If you don't ever do that, and then one day you decide, you know what, I'm going to deny what my flesh wants in this moment that I know is not healthy for me. Your body gets, what we've given it a word, we call it hangry. And when you get hangry, essentially what you're saying is that you have an appetite that's overpowering your soul and your spirit. And so this body, be body ruled, by the way, is what the word carnal means. So we become carnal in our, in our still carnal, but Christians, but carnal. So we become carnal and we become body ruled. And so the day that we do decide to parent, father our own physicality, our, our child here, the body says, hey, wait, wait, wait. Uh, you don't, you don't get how this relationship works. I tell you when to eat. I tell you when to sleep. I tell you what to do. And I tell you what I want and you do what I want. And then we wonder why we're so unhealthy. That's called being carnal or to be body ruled, ruled by the appetites of our own lust. Now the body is not an, an enemy. The body's actually good. The body's a gift to us. The flesh is good. We're not Gnostics here. Okay. Believe it, that the, 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 everything spirit, soul, and body redeemed in salvation is able to be uh, 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 enjoyed as unto the Lord. Okay. So it's like having a parent to a child relationship. That's healthy. There's an authority structure where the parent knows what's best for the child and the child walks in submission, obedient to the parent. So then growing up to be, uh, to be a healthy spirit, soul and body themselves. And this is the way that we do with our own bodies. So when Jesus says this kind comes out, by prayer and fasting, he's talking about unbelief. And so he connects, directly connects fasting and prayer or things that put the body and the soul into subjection to the spirit. He's saying, here's the way you get rid of unbelief. You give more attention to your spirit and more authority to the things of the spirit than you do to the things of the, of the soul and the body. That's the mind, the will, and the emotions and the physical flesh. Those things, mind, will, emotions, and physical flesh are great students, but they're horrible teachers and horrible leaders. When you let your mind rule you, you're not being led by the spirit. The thought life is supposed to be subject to the spirit. When you let your will rule you uh, and, and the body is in charge, then it will, you'll develop all kinds of appetites that will actually war against your spirit. Your mind, will, and emotions and body not subject to the spirit of God are constantly telling your spirit to shut up and sit down. And, and the spirit is very meek and humble until you come into alignment with saying that you're saying, I am going to give the authority structure, the right uh, order here. We are led by the spirit. We live in a soul. We have a body, but the soul, the mind, the will, and the emotions and the body, the physicality are going to come in line with the spirit. I'm way oversimplifying this, but I just want to make this accessible and easy for you to put into practice because I think that this is, this is absolutely true and it's a key to overcoming unbelief. To walk in the spirit, the Bible says, walk in the spirit and you'll not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. What is he saying? When the spirit is in charge, your body and your soul will have a harder time taking you to unhealthy places and producing an unhealthy result in your life.
So just walking in the spirit, not fulfilling the lusts of the flesh. Super simple concept, but the reality is putting the spirit in charge sometimes takes things that we do like prayer and fasting. That's the benefits of that. It's basically just reminding the body and the soul as to who is in charge. Your mind, your will, your emotions, and your body typically aren't going to be the first to sign up for prayer and fasting. That's something that is led by the spirit and has to be spirit empowered or, or it will end up turning into religious ritual. Well, now we finish up with the fourth kind of unbelief. We've started with the first three. The first one was ignorance. Remember, just completely ignorant, don't know what you don't know. And so you lean on the faith of another. And sometimes in that mode, you can see healing happen. The second kind is an unbelief that comes from learning something wrong. That is misinformed unbelief. And that is that you've learned something, you've had faith in something, another teaching that's completely diluted the gospel of its power. Third kind of unbelief is when you've stepped into a situation and you haven't seen the breakthrough and you got offended at God and you carry offense in your unbelief. There's there's an offended unbelief. There's a stronghold there in a sense that that now you have to you have to deal with that offense at God. Um, and we talked about not doing guilt and shame and not blaming God, keeping your heart unoffendable. But then there's the fourth kind of unbelief. And I think this is the, the kind of unbelief that's that's led a lot of people even out of church. And that is to the point where you, you get rebellious against the things of God. This isn't just mere offense. This is all out rebellion against the things of God. In other words, you're purposing in your heart to literally intentionally believe the opposite of the gospel and the opposite of what the word of God says. Some people do this, of course, to insulate themselves from, from hurt and offense of things that haven't happened in the past. But I think there's, there's a, there's a kind of a, a sense behind this where there are people that have, have tasted of the goodness of God in the past. They've seen healing happen at their hands, but they couldn't control it. You know, here, when we get a hold of the power of God, when we see the power of God move through us, so often we're like, oh my goodness, God has given me this power and me, he's given this authority. In Luke 9, 1 and Matthew 10, 1, Jesus gives the disciples power and authority and, and they go out and they use that power to do amazing things. And, uh, I believe it's Matthew 10 where um, he says, uh, go out and, and heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead. Like you go do it as if they have the power to do it. He doesn't theologically unpack the reasons behind why they wouldn't be able to do it or couldn't do it. He just tells them to do it as if they can. And it's really an astonishing portion of scripture to read. Uh, when you see Jesus saying to this, these people as if the power actually is in their hands. You know, here's the problem. And that is that we go get a hold of power and we want to control it. We want to do what we want to do with it. And, you know, the power may be something that God has given to us, but he never uh, lets go of being the source of that power and the source of that life. You know, and God is not going to allow you to move in a power that produces in you an arrogant control to the point where it ultimately ends up destroying you. God's not going to give you anything that's going to cause you harm. What ends up happening is when we discover we don't have the control over this thing, we can exercise a measure of faith, we can completely suppress unbelief, but in the middle of all that, certain things still don't happen the way we want them to happen. Then I think sometimes we get more than just offended at God. It's almost like we take the entire gift 
the, the gifts, the spirit, the salvation, everything, we throw it back in his face and we just say, I don't want any of it. If I can't have it on my terms, then I don't, I don't want any of it. And you know, one of the things that God is doing in all of us is he is teaching us how to walk in the power of his spirit. He's teaching us how to be sons and daughters. We're coming to the end of this broadcast and I pray this has been a blessing for you. Take a look at these four areas of unbelief in your life and just ask yourself the question. Stop asking, how much faith do I have? Ask the question, how much unbelief do I have? And maybe like the father whose son was having the seizures, seizures, ask God, help my unbelief. Just as he asked Jesus, Lord, help my unbelief. That's such an important prayer. And I think if you'll begin to pray that prayer, you'll start seeing God move in your life to actually help you whittle away at the maybe mountain of unbelief that you've built. Listen, I trust that this broadcast is a blessing to you. Let me pray for you today. And let's just pray that God will continue uh, to help us to walk in the faith of the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Father, I thank you for the faith that you've given us. The faith to believe comes from you. It's all yours. The faith to walk in miracles comes from you. It's all yours. The faith to see spirit, soul, and body be renewed and salvation come to people. It's all yours. Father, we just rest in it and we thank you for it and we praise you that today you're saving, delivering, and healing people all over this world. Lord, if there's anyone listening to this broadcast today who doesn't know you, I pray that today that they would say, Jesus, come into my life, be my Lord, and be my Savior. Thank you for forgiving me of all of my sin, for making me clean and new, and fill me with your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. You can write to us here at Faith Mountain Ministries, Box 595, Marshall, Minnesota, 56258. The address, once again, Faith Mountain Ministries, Box 595, Marshall, Minnesota, 56258. This is Bill Vanderbush from all of us here at Faith Mountain Ministries. Until next time, may the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.